TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. This is an updated archival program in memory of Cecile Pineda. She gave the introduction to this passionate indictment of nuclear power. Cecile Pineda had come to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship Hall in Berkeley on Hiroshima Day 2014 to support Harvey Wasserman. He campaigns to prevent the opening of nuclear power plants, to limit their operation, or to close them down. I recorded this event on August 6, 2014, and remember the mood of the standing room audience. The ongoing global contamination that the explosion of the Fukushima reactors had initiated only three years earlier was on everybody's mind. Cecile Pineda had just finished her novel, Devil's Tango, How I Learned the Fukushima Step by Step, that the nations John Nichols called an astonishing anatomy of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. Cecile Pineda died at home on August 11, 2022. Her friends and students miss her voice, her humor, her deep scientific knowledge, and her rebellion, all inside her art of writing. This replay of her appearance, along with Harvey Wasserman, has an eerily contemporary cast. In August 2022, nuclear power is being sold as solution to climate change. Here's my introduction to the original broadcast. From Fukushima to Solartopia, how the green-powered Earth Revolution can defeat King Kong, coal, oil, nukes, and gas. Only someone who worked tirelessly to defeat nuclear power for over 40 years and has not stopped to this day, someone who lived and built a renewable energy utopia for the same 40 years, can take the frightening topic of Fukushima and give energy for a way out. Harvey Wasserman says that we are in the fight for our lives. We must and can build the green-powered Earth before the next nuclear meltdown. To this day, Wasserman has investigated the nuclear industry and their meltdowns from Harrisburg to Chernobyl and Fukushima. His website, solartopia.org, is the best link to his online activities and his weekly radio show on PRN. Cecil Pineda, the Mexican-American author of Devil's Tango, How I Learned the Fukushima Step-by-Step Step, gave him an eloquent introduction. Cecile Pineda. It gives me great displeasure to have to introduce Harvey Wasserman to you. I wouldn't have to be doing it if Enrico Fermi hadn't split the atom in 1934. I wouldn't have to be doing this if 12 hyped-up mathematicians at Alamogordo hadn't worked developing what they cavalier referred to as jet. I wouldn't have to introduce Harvey if nuclear energy couldn't be profitable unless it provided bomb-grade plutonium to the atomic weapons industry. I wouldn't have to introduce Harvey 
If there weren't 7,315 nuclear bombs currently in the U.S. arsenal, and if, in a nod to austerity, the Pentagon wasn't planning on a bargain basement nuclear war slated for 2016 targeting Russia and possibly China. I wouldn't have to introduce Harvey if human negligence, deliberate criminality, and utter disregard for its dangers, human activity hadn't allowed more than 330,000 metric tons of nuclear waste to proliferate all over the planet with no technology in sight to sequester it from the biosphere. So here we are on August 6, 2014, the 69th anniversary of the number one empires crossing the line in the sand and delivering the first two atom bombs on a civilian population. Although there were most likely more than just one smaller scale experiments conducted on its own people and in its own territories earlier and many more would be scheduled later. So. Let me stop here by sharing one small ray of light with you, this quote from Howard Zinn. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there's so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presence and to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us, it in itself is a marvelous victory. Harvey Wasserman has lived his life and dedicated his heart and mind to the spinning top for over 40 years. Please cheer this kind, compassionate, and courageous warrior, Harvey. Harvey Wasserman began by extending personal greetings and thanks to Cecile Pineda and friends and fellow activists. Where I am here now is to t tell you good news and then bad news and then really good news. Okay, so the good news is this. We're winning. We are definitely shutting down the nuclear power industry. It's definitely happening. From 1968 to 1984, I lived on a hippie farm in western Massachusetts. We had been there five years. We stopped burning the furniture. We figured out how to, how to insulate the house and, and keep warm. And uh, one day in, in December of 1973, the local utility company announced that they were going to build twin nuclear reactors four miles from our house. And in the local newspaper, there was a, an aerial photograph of the Montague Plains, which was the, where they were going to put it, and then they superimposed a, uh, a sketch, an artist's rendering of these nuclear plants. And the minute I looked at this, and all of us, we all looked at it instantly and said, we are going to stop this thing, and we are going to end 
any idea that they're going to bring the bulldozers into, into the Montague Plains. Now, we were given zero chance to stop these guys. We were just a bunch of hippies on the hill. Some of you may know about, we made films, we, we organized, we wrote books. Anna Georgie wrote a wonderful book called No Nukes. And uh, we just kicked them right out of town. They never got the bulldozers in. Now, in 1974, Richard Nixon, remember Richard Nixon? <laughs> he announced in the middle of the Arab oil embargo that there would be 1,000 commercial reactors in the United States by the year 2000. 1,000. And literally from the time he made that announcement, the numbers started to drop, largely because of our, our movement in two directions. One, because of our political opposition. We cut off uh, funding from the federal government, most of the funding, actually, that they would have gotten. And also, we started promoting renewables. Because of our movement, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise, we cut the number down. They never got over about 120 in the United States, which is way too many, but still, it ain't 1,000. We shut four reactors last year, including two at San Onofre, between LA and San Diego. A huge victory. And so one of, the, one of the things I'm here to urge is that um, all Californians, and I'm actually becoming a Californian, we still have Diablo Canyon. We have two reactors at Diablo Canyon. And I want to let you know that there, there is a really nice place to stay in San Luis Obispo. It's the county jail. I did three nights there. I plan on doing more back in 1984. We were the late-in-the-day affinity group. And you know that react, those reactors will be shut. But it, is, it should be the number one priority. People ask me in California, what, what, what can we do out here? Shutting Diablo Canyon is a huge deal. It is in a tsunami zone. And it is surrounded by earthquake faults. It's the job of an organizer to make sure that people understand that you can win. And we've been winning for more than 40 years, actually, in, in slowing this industry down. And I want to acknowledge one of the great heroes of our movement. I talked to Dennis about him on the, on the radio today. Uh, a Bay Area, uh, uh, well, he wasn't a native. He was from Cleveland. But he, he lived out the re most of his life on Clayton Street in San Francisco, uh, Dr. John Goffman. Dr. Goffman was at Lawrence Livermore. He, he was a genius, if, he, if there ever was one. Deserved two Nobel Prizes. He, he did one of the, some of the major uh, pioneering work in LDL cholesterol. I never knew that until after he passed away. But he was also part of the Manhattan Project. And he co-discovered some of the isotopes that made nuclear weapons, unfortunately, and nuclear power possible. And he became the chief health officer of the Atomic Energy Commission. And in one of the most important acts of defiance and truth, truthiness, I guess, as Stephen Colbert would say, in our history. Um, I got to tell this story because, you know, this is Hiroshima Day. This is a, a major turning point. And um, in, in, very few people understood that commercial reactors could harm people uh, back in the, in the late 1960s, early 70s. Uh, but another great hero, Dr. Ernest Sternglass, was a radiologist at the University of Pittsburgh. And he got in the mail anonymously uh, records of the radiation emissions from the shipping port commercial reactor, uh, which was the first to open in the world, actually, in 1957. And being a radiologist, he understood. He looked at the numbers, and he realized that shipping port, even though it didn't have an accident, was killing people. He wrote a book called Secret Fallout, which was pulped, by the way. There, some very strange things happened to the copies of Secret Fallout. So when this came out, it was a big scandal, a big deal. And by the way, Ernie um, uh, single-handedly, in many ways, stopped the anti-ballistic missile system. This was um, in, in the late 60s. 
our plan, the, the, Amer the genius American plan, was to put uh, nuclear-tipped missiles around all of our cities. And if nuclear-tipped missiles were coming in, we would shoot nuclear-tipped missiles up and we would blow them up. And that was going to save us, right? So Ernie pointed out a small detail that if you did that, there'd be so much radiation that every child in the United States would basically kill over dead. And um, uh, the article was published in Esquire, and actually it's generally uh, credited with having turned Congress against the ABM system. Uh, and so when Ernie came out again and said that the nuclear power plants were going to harm people or were harming people, they assigned Dr. Goffman, who was as prestigious a scientist as there was in the world, with his tremendous credentials from the Manhattan Project and all that other stuff. He was a medical doctor as well as a nuclear chemist. The head of the, the chief of the uh, safety division of the Atomic Energy Commission, they said, go deal with this guy, expecting him to exonerate the nuclear industry. To John's everlasting credit and to the importance of our movement, he came back and said, well, you know, we've looked at this. He had a co-researcher named Arthur Tamplin from the RAND Corporation. They basically found out that nuclear power plants, without an accident, and with far fewer, far smaller reactors than we have today, were killing 32,000 Americans a year. Now, the AEC wanted none of this, and they basically forced him out. They, didn't, they couldn't fire him. He was too prestigious. But they, they, gave, they put him in a closet, basically. They took away his staff. They took away his funding. He published a book called Poisoned Power which was ironically published, well not ironically, fittingly published by the Rodale Press, the organic gardening and farming people. And uh, we read Poison Power on our farm. Um, and John, by the way, stuck with it for the rest of his life. I mean, he was unrelenting and absolutely an essential piece of the no-nukes movement. When he was asked what he thought of the nuclear power industry, remember, this is a guy at the top of the heap. He, he characterized nuclear power, and I quote, as premeditated mass murder. That's what he called the commercial atomic reactor industry. Tokyo Electric Power Company built Fukushima. They owned Fukushima, and they blew up Fukushima, all four reactors, and they still own Fukushima. We circulated a petition, I circulated this last summer and fall, to go to the United Nations and ask the United Nations to set up a separate body to take over Fukushima and to put the experts there could really clean this place up. We got 150,000 signatures. Uh, Move On helped, and uh, Roots Action, and the Green Shadow Cabinet, and Greenpeace, and a few other organizations, 150,000 signatures. We took these signatures to the UN on November 7th, uh, last year, we have yet to get a reply. We have not heard a word from the United Nations. But the reality is that TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power, has no liability in this situation. Not only don't they have any liability, they're making money on this. Last year, Tokyo Electric Power showed a huge profit, mostly based on government money coming in to pay them to clean up the mess they made, of which they're completely incapable of doing. So let's talk about this. Um, I'm going to go into the, the difficult phase of this talk. We'll get it out of the way, okay? And, uh, and we, generally, I pass out Prozac and Zoloft and other things to, but you know, this, is, this is hard stuff, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have to tell you, many of our commercial reactors in this country are downriver from large dams. And these dams are susceptible to earthquake damage, among other things. Um, we have a dam upriver from the, uh, the three reactors at Oconee in um, South Carolina, which has a 65-foot crack in it. And it is clear that if that, God forbid, that dam broke, 
the wall of water would exceed the tsunami that hit uh, uh, Fukushima in size. We've already had a reactor in, at Fort Calhoun, which we now call Port Calhoun in Nebraska, which was flooded in, in, uh, by the uh, Missouri River uh, a few years ago. So that we've had experience with this already. This is not good news. At Fukushima, units one, two, three, four, and five, this is American technology. This is, these are Mark I General Electric reactors. For more than 40 years, the nuclear power industry has been telling us that no commercial reactor can explode, okay? Now, we had an explosion at Three Mile Island. We don't know how big it was, actually. And I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to tell a, a little aside here. At Three Mile Island, and this is part of our activist community here, at Three Mile Island, there was a woman. When they built Unit 2, she got it in her brain that she, that she was going to demand that the containment at Three Mile Island be able to withstand a jet crash. When you fly into Harrisburg, you fly right around this thing. She fought and fought and fought, and she won. She forced them to make the TMI uh, containment dome the strongest one in the United States. And you know what happened? When the meltdown occurred, which they denied, by the way, denied, they denied for years there was a meltdown of fuel. When the hydrogen explosion happened, it was almost entirely contained, thank God, by the containment dome. And we don't know to this day whether or not that woman had saved all of the Northeast of the United States by forcing that containment. So don't ever think that this small deal that you're doing here or there, you know, uh, doesn't have an impact. Then comes Fukushima. And after all these years of hearing American reactors can't explode, four of them exploded. Those are general electric reactors. Units one, two, and three, the core was in there. All three of them melted into the ground. We don't know where they are. Now, this is my 41st year of fighting nuclear power. Nowhere before 2011 did we hear anything about multiple meltdowns. People always said, well, what if a commercial reactor melts? <laughs> what if three, three melt, for God's sakes? They don't know where these cores are after all these years. So the reality is that and this is the, actually the worst thing I'm going to have to say, is that I am terrified of the uh, water pouring into the Pacific Ocean. You know, this is cesium and many other highly lethal uh, isotopes. And the question is not, are these isotopes potentially dangerous to human life? Of course they are. I think the only thing we can do at this point in time about Fukushima is to continue to pressure some kind of global response. TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power, should not continue to own Fukushima. They do not have the expertise. They don't have the incentive. There's, you know, these are corporations we're dealing with. If there's a single virus that has infected and threatened the human race, it is the corporation. This entity... <laughs> this entity that has been given human rights but no human responsibilities. There is no built-in financial incentive for Tokyo Electric Power Company to clean up Fukushima. And it's true of all the reactors in the world. And so that, more than anything, is what we really have to change. I believe we can change it. Why? Because our survival is at stake. If there's one thing that is more powerful than the profit motive, it's the survival instinct. What else do we need to know? You know, what more can go wrong? So now, as we move ahead uh, into the good stuff, we do have uh, a diminishing, rapidly diminishing number of commercial reactors in the world. It is happening. 
We shut, like I say, five last year. This year, um, uh, Vermont Yankee will shut. There's no doubt about it. And all the reactors, all the reactors in the United States uh, are old, and they are losing their competitiveness. The, the Mark Ones, there's 23 General Electric reactors. There's a lot of old Westinghouse reactors. We have reached the tipping point. We actually reached it in 2011, where wind and solar are cheaper than operating nuclear plants. This is, now, that's a huge deal. It means you now can do, yes, you now can do, you now can put in solar panels and, and put nuclear power plants, existing nuclear power plants, fully amortized nuclear power plants out of business. Talk about chutzpah. They're going into the Illinois legislature and they're saying we need money to continue to operate these fully amortized reactors because they fight global warming. Now we may lose a couple of those battles. You know, Nebraska, uh, Texas, uh, maybe a few other states will come, will, will lose and they'll get some subsidies for a while. But Massachusetts, uh, other states we should win. Uh, it may even come up here, uh, Diablo is not quite at that state yet, but it may even come up in California where they start to ask for uh, subsidies to operate these reactors. But if we, if we can keep them from getting them, they will shut. So um, this all, back then we had a vision. I, I actually came up with a name for it in 2005, Solartopia, a totally green-powered Earth. We talked about it in 75. It was actually coming on in 76, 77, 78 when Carter came in. Carter had his faults, but he did have a, have a vision of green power, and he did set up the uh, National Renewable Energy Lab. And then the apocalypse occurred named Ronald Reagan. And anybody want to <laughs> doubt the damage done by Ronald Reagan, I can tell you that he set us back a good 20, 25 years on renewable energy. There's absolutely no doubt about it. You know, ripping the solar panels off the roof of the White House was the least of what Ronald Reagan did, as did George Duke Majin here in California. It's horrifying what they did. And luckily for us, and I, it's hard for many Americans to understand this, there are other countries in the world. And the, the, techno the, the technology was picked up by Denmark and, you know, Danish. And, uh, and the Japanese did a lot of solar. The Israelis did a lot of solar. And then the Germans, although the Germans basically took over Denmark's technology. I also want to mention um, hemp. And hemp was the number two cash crop in America before and during the, and immediately after the American Revolution, number one being tobacco, uh, which was the more dangerous drug. So now with the prohibition on marijuana finally starting to end, hemp will come in. And hemp will be a much larger cash crop than marijuana ever was. We also will have biofuels. Let me talk about biofuels very quickly, and I'm going to wind down here after we get through Solartopia. Biofuels are very, an extremely important part of the, uh, the renewable energy mix. But we cannot make biofuels from corn and soy. It makes no sense whatsoever. We cannot use food crops to make fuel. We can't have people competing uh, with hunger against automobiles. And plus, they're lousy sources of ethanol anyway. We will also have wave energy. Anybody see? Wave energy is one of my favorite. They basically take a, a giant metal sausage and they have it uh, uh, split in the middle and they go up and down and it squishes water and creates energy. We also have under, essentially underwater windmills. There's one out, off in Norway and uh, it's way more powerful than wind-driven windmills. Wind is uh, irregular. W water and currents are way more powerful and way more um, uh, reliable. We also have ocean thermal. 
We have geothermal. God, God willing, we'll get, finally get some mass transit in this country and uh, increased efficiency, conservation, things like that. So to conclude with that part of it, we are on the brink of what I consider the most important technological revolution in human history, which is the conversion from King Kong, coal, oil, nukes, and gas, to Solartopia, a totally green-powered Earth. We have the technology, and it's economical. That's the turning point that we welcome now. All these technologies, which were once pie in the sky and which were considered too expensive, are now cheaper. They're cheaper than coal. They're cheaper than oil, for God's sakes. And they're cheaper than nukes. The only thing competing with renewables now is fracked gas. And fracked gas is a nightmare, as I'm, I don't have to tell you all. And I just want to conclude by saying, as we go to Solartopia, as we go to a, a green-powered Earth, and as we win this, and we are winning it, now I'm in the position of telling you that our, perhaps our number one ally in the conversion to Solartopian technology is Wall Street. Because, <laughs> thank you. Because there is a faction in Wall Street that's invested in fossil and nuclear fuels, but it is shrinking. The big money is going into renewables. So the bottom line is this. We are on the brink now. And in my world, I live my life every day praying that we get to Solartopia before the next meltdown. It is a race. And uh, just take heart in all the progress we've made and remember that our survival is at stake here as well as our economy. And uh, let's move it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was the conclusion of a speech by Harvey Wasserman on how the green-powered Earth revolution can defeat King Kong, coal, oil, nukes, and gas. I recorded him in Berkeley, California, on August 6, 2014. In over 40 years of anti-nuclear activism and green, renewable energy practice, Wasserman has authored and co-authored a dozen books countless articles for publications from Counterpunch to the New York Times. He teaches college-level history, does a weekly radio show on PRN, and has an active presence on the Internet that you can access through his website, solartopia.org. I replayed this talk by Harvey Wasserman for his clear message against King Kong, and for the optimism he exudes, and for a kind of joy needed at a time when we are having some setbacks. Just yesterday, news came in that a bill has been introduced to extend the life of California's last remaining nuclear power plant, the Diablo Canyon Power Plant near San Luis Obispo. Harvey Wasserman, still active today in August 2022, joined the campaign to defeat the bill. At the top of this program, you heard the introduction to Wasserman and nuclear power plants by the writer and activist Cecile Pineda. Cecile Pineda died at home on August 11, 2022, eight years after this event and I'm urging you to take note of her books on memory, history, immigration, ecology, and science. On the back cover of her book, Apology to a Whale, Words, 
to mend a world. Joanna Macy says, quote, Cecile Pineda has the nerve to ask the one simple question that eludes our public posturing and computation. It is the one question that could save us. What has happened to our mind that we are killing our world? End quote. You can hear this program again on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. There you can also subscribe to weekly free podcasts. This program was produced with solar power in the mountains of Northern California. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.